Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to episode 23 of The Brainstorm. Today we're going to be talking all things space, touch on OpenAI's developer day, and open source first private AI models. Uh, we're very lucky to very lucky to be joined by Eric Berger, who's the senior space editor at Ars Technica. Eric, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So maybe we just start off, you know, you have a close eye on space. What, what do you want to talk about? What, you know, everyone wants to talk about SpaceX, so we'll save that. Besides SpaceX, you know, what's really exciting you in space? You know, there's lots of interesting things happening. Two that I'm following are, you know, we're nearing the end of the year and United Launch Alliance is supposed to debut its big new rocket, Vulcan. Um, that's currently scheduled for a couple of days before Christmas um, to make its debut flight. We'll see if they see if they get there. Um, but that's an interesting rocket because it's got Blue Origin engines. Um, United Launch Alliance is up for sale. So there's a lot riding on that launch. And um, it's very important to the, the U.S. Department of Defense and NASA because right now the only really rockets that are, is that available with any capacity is the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets from SpaceX. So they'd like to have some redundancy. And what's your take? Obviously with the ULA, incredible delays and cost overruns, I think, you know, it's up for sale for a reason. Otherwise, if everything were humming along, I imagine they would not be, you know, quick to sell it. So what's kind of your take on that program? Who do you see as possible suitors for it? Um, and do you think it can kind of be acquired and something that's reliable in the future? Or is this something that's kind of s separated from the main body and then left to wither and other new companies are going to usurp it? So ULA is owned by Boeing and Lockheed Martin, um, and the company is definitely up for sale. 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's an announcement within the next couple of months about a buyer and then it's going to have to go through regulatory approval. Um, I think it's just a fact of the matter that, you know, ULA started out as a monopoly. It's no longer a monopoly. It's going to have to get out there and compete. And I think to be successful, ultimately, ULA is going to require significant private investment. Um, and I, I don't think Boeing and Lockheed want to put that in. And so I, I do think it's up for sale. Based upon what I'm hearing now, I don't think Boeing or Lockheed is the buyer. So I think it's going to be a new buyer. Um, private equity seems like a pretty good bet to me coming in and trying to make it more competitive. Um, Blue Origin is is a distinct possibility I've heard recently. And then the other opportunity, I think, is if you're a company that wants to get into space and into government contracts, and maybe you're a large aerospace company but don't have space assets, this might be a, a valuable commodity for you to pick up because certainly they have lots of contracts out there with both the government and Amazon for the Project Kuiper launches. Interesting. And then what, what was the second topic that you were focused on? I just, the, you know, I, I'm inter- was interested in, um, in the transporter mission that launched this weekend, SpaceX is with the ninth transporter mission of small satellites. And um, there were some really interesting payloads on there. Like, for example, a company called Impulse Space had a, um, a, 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 a LEO mission one, they called it um, the, the spacecraft that they've built that's really innovated in terms of its in-space propulsion capabilities. And I think that's really kind of the next step after launch. You know, SpaceX has really dominated that area, but then there is still lots of opportunity for moving things around once they get to space. Um, and it's, so it's interesting to see if companies like Impulse, Launcher, Deorbit, um, Rocket Lab with their Photon spacecraft. There's a bunch of others too, like Momentus, that, that sort of, it's, it's really the period for these companies to start sinking, sinking or swimming where launch was maybe a decade ago. Definitely. And I, I'd love your take on this. You know, we're getting towards the end of the year, so we're working on our end of year research reports and putting things together. And the title is Big Ideas. But one of the one of the topics that I was considering was going out there and saying, you know, small launch is not a big idea. And there's been tons of these companies that have reached various stages. And if there are people who are working on them, they still claim that, you know, there's a market for this long term and it can be a good business. But interested to hear kind of what you think of the launch market in general. Well, I'm, I know a lot of the rocket company CEOs and like them a lot, um, but I have to say that small launch is a terrible business. Um, any any company that has successfully gotten in the launch, small launch has either gone out of business or pivoted hard to a bigger rocket as quickly as possible. We've certainly seen that with Rocket Lab, um, which if you look at their financials, you guys know more about that than I do, but you know they are not making money on the Electron rocket. They probably never will, so they're trying to build Neutron and they have in-space propulsion businesses and other things like that. Um, you know, Relativity did one small launch and then pivoted as quickly as they could to Terran R. Virgin Orbit went out of business. So, I mean, it's like, I, I, I don't see how any company makes money on small launch. I have uh, two quick questions. Just, I'm the, the layman here. I don't cover this space. I understand it only as much as uh, Sam can explain it to me. But what separates small versus large launch? And then why is it such a bad business in your opinion? Um, so small launch is basically satellites of about one or one and a half tons or less. Um, so okay. like the Falcon 9 rocket can carry about 20 tons to low Earth orbit. Um, a medium lift rocket, you know, is like 
five to 20 rock tons. And so small launch is like anywhere from 200 kilograms to one or one and a half tons. And the problem is, you know, you, you can scale rockets down, but there's still lots of fixed costs with a rocket launch. You've got launch site costs, you've got regulatory costs, you've got to pay the government for all these services. Um, and so, yeah, the rocket's smaller and cheaper to build, but you don't get that economy of scale that you do with when you're charging 60 or hundred million and you're trying to charge six to 12 million dollars for a small launch. It's just, no one has made, no one has made it work going back to Elon and uh, the Falcon one, you know, they launched that in 2008, 2009 successfully. And then they canceled the program because they saw the future was Falcon nine. And we're seeing that with the other companies, I think. Gotcha. And are you going to try and make it down later this week for a potential starship launch? Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, you know, we're recording this on a Monday and I think if they're going to go Friday, they have to hear today or tomorrow from the FAA, which is possible. Um, so we'll see, but yeah, the plan is to drive down. I'm in Houston, Texas, so it's not that bad for me to get to, you know, I'm jealous always of the Florida guys and girls who get to see launches frequently. It's nice to have a starship. I can just drive to those. So it's, it's good. That's awesome. And you know, what are, what are your kind of expectations here on timeline? for Starship. I thought it was surprising. It was last week or, yeah, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, you know, Musk tweeting out that Starlink is free cash flow break even. Um, obviously a huge milestone there, but very dependent on Starship for really scaling it to the next level. Yeah, you know, Elon made huge bets back in 2015 and 2016 when he started both Starlink and Starship. These were both $10 billion development programs, at least. And they both had to work for the company to be successful. Starlink was going to be to pay for the Mars ambitions and, and Starship was needed to launch all the Starlink satellites. And so it's remarkable that you know, here we are seven, eight years later, seeing those programs maturing. Um, I think Starship is the one that has further to go. Um, and, you know, they really need to get through these test flights. And I think if they can get get this one off the ground safely um, and show that their launch site modifications work, then it will be significantly easy, easier in the future to get regulatory approval. So they'll they'll get to a higher launch cadence next year. And that's really the thing with Starship. They need to get flying pretty frequently to work the kinks out of the system, start flying Starlink satellites, and then they can get the reliability they need to push on for the, the lunar missions for NASA. I think that's great framing. The desired outcome here is a demonstration of increased cadence capability as opposed to a, you know, full on successful flight, right? It probably still blows up at some point, hopefully further along after stage separation. Um, yeah, I think if it gets to staging, so if the first stage more or less does its job and they're able to get the second stage engines lit and pulling away from the first stage, that's a success. Um, I would, you know, I, don't think the reasonable expectation is to, to have a whole flight and have it splash down near Hawaii. Although I think that's certainly possible, but I, you know, probably a one in four chance or something like that, maybe that they make it that far. But, you know, ideally it would be a complete failure if they have some kind of issue on the ground um, after all the work they've done regulatory and infrastructure wise. But, you know, ideally you would see some very good first stage performance. And so you can focus on this issues of separation and starship performance. All right. And then I guess just two last questions here. Second to last one on competition. I think when we talk about SpaceX, often what we hear is, oh, you know, Blue Origin and China. 
and at least when i look blue origin execution still seems quite slow uh be interested to hear your thoughts and then china most recently the video going around is kind of the suborbital rocket hop and you know that's very different than reaching orbit and coming back so would love your thoughts on competition if those are the two correct places to be looking or if yeah. there's some place else to be looking so right now there is <clears throat> quite frankly no competition to what spacex is doing in the launch industry um the only reason they don't have 100 of launches in the western world is because europe wants its own capability and, and you know you know there's a there's a desire both for you know, competition in the industry from satellite companies and things like that. And there's also a reluctance to work with SpaceX. I mean, they, they do not play particularly well with others in terms of, you know, they do, they try to do everything vertically integrated. Um, so, but, but they have the cheapest, best rocket on the market. And it's not even close. Um, you know, Blue Origin is coming along. Jeff Bezos is probably investing like $2 billion a year in that company, but it, it remains very slow, very plotting, and I think they still have quite a ways to go on New Glenn, their orbital rocket. Um, in terms of competition, other companies I would look at closely are Rocket Lab. Um, I have a lot of confidence in their CEO, Peter Beck, um, and I think they're making the right step with Neutron. It's not that huge of a step, um, and I think so. I think there'll be some medium lift competition within a couple of years, and then potentially relativity space. Um, in the mid 2020s, we'll see they're really biting off a lot with their Terran R vehicle, but they've got good people. Um, and then you mentioned China, <clears throat> you know, the, the work that China is doing that, that private company video was cool, but that's about where SpaceX was a decade ago with Grasshopper. So I think they've got, they've got a ways to go, but they certainly are the, they, <clears throat> they are the most credible competition in my mind because they have the government interest. It's quite clear that the government and private companies, in China are not hiding their admiration for SpaceX. Like they are not trying to do it a different way. They're seeing what SpaceX is doing and quite clearly copying that. Um, but, you know, having just written my second book on SpaceX, I know how hard it was to do what they did with the Falcon 9. So I, I still think it will be quite a while before China or anyone else gets to that kind of a capability with a reusable first stage and just these efficient operations. Great. And then you led right into the last question here. Uh, how do people follow along with what you're doing and how should people track what's going on in space? Yeah. So I write for Ars Technica. Um, there's, we now have two space reporters, myself and Stephen Clark. So we do a pretty good job of keeping uh, up to date on the most interesting things happening. Um, so you can find us there. Um, and then I have written um, a book that was published a couple of years ago called Liftoff about the origin of SpaceX and in about 10 months, I'll publish a sequel um, that's going to cover the kind of the Falcon 9 and the rise of reusable spaceflight and kind of tell the story of actually how they did it, which <laughs> is a pretty interesting story. So Amazing. Well, I, I remember when Liftoff, I think, came out, we did a podcast episode. Uh, I guess that's two or three years back now. Um, and hopefully we'll have you on again when the new book comes out. I'd love to do it. There's lots of lots of great stories, and um, <laughs> they did some crazy things, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to do crazy things to accomplish crazy goals. That's right. Amazing. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's been my pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Changing topics here to OpenAI and their developer day that they just had. Nick, what are the big takeaways here? 
bigger, faster, stronger, I think. Uh, no, we got a ton of new uh, news out of this developer day, uh, mainly that uh, their next generation uh, ChatGBT, ChatGBT4 Turbo um, is going to be better than the previous generation. I feel like this is kind of like an Apple announcement. Oh, it's slightly thinner. Um, you know, it, it works slightly better. Um, well, is it 128,000 uh, <laughs> character context window? That seems like a, a big yeah, jump. I mean, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. No, I was I was making light of the achievements that they that they have in this <laughs> in this developer day, but I think what you're seeing is just a general shift in the way that they're approaching AI. I think what they're doing around agents, um, and so this is the embedding of allowing anyone to create their own. GPT. Um, so you can now, you know, prompt and essentially train a individualized version of ChatGPT to a specific uh, use case. So if you want, you know, a ChatGPT that is only going to talk to you about space, right, you can actually now have that in this new announcement. And I think that is really an interesting approach to the foundational uh, model that they have. And so I think the way that they put it is you're essentially now building in uh, App Store on top of this foundational model in ChatGBT4 Turbo, or I assume the foundational model beneath all of these ChatGBTs will continue to improve. Um, but then you have you know this l application layer on top that is, I think, a really interesting business model. Because if you look at you know what Apple's able to do, they take 30% of all transactions, I would imagine, you know, if developers want to monetize their individualized version of GPT, um, they can now, you know, offer a monetization method or OpenAI will have an, a monetization method off of, uh, you know, the GPTs people are building. My one question, my one concern, and this is something I've always thought about when it's come to AI, because this is essentially low code to no code, as in you're just text prompting to build some of these GPTs, how commoditized does this second layer get? Or how much develop how much development needs to go into this to have something truly unique that someone can't just, you know, come out and copy? And what do copyright laws and, you know, infringement on IP look like at this level? Those are the questions I would have when it comes to kind of this new monetization mechanism and, and app ecosystem evolving on top of uh, the chat GBT foundation models. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I am hesitant about or cautious of, obviously, you know, data is king here. And so the ability to upload your own data as part of that GPT training set, uh, you have to go like another layer deeper to say, don't train on this. But I do think chat GPT, open AI, they're looking for in more data, more novel data that's not available out there. Because I think to what you're saying, how do you avoid becoming commoditized or being a commodity? You have data that no one else has. And so there's that on the GPT side, but then there's also the other announcement that they made, I guess in parallel or is just on their site where they're looking to work with individual companies that might have proprietary data sets and to build off of that because i yeah i think you're right they need novel data to stay ahead of the game 
Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, this is really taking uh, the use cases we've seen today and just kind of blowing them out of the water. Like the ability to have agents acting on your behalf or having uh, ChatGPT interface with external APIs, I think that's what takes this whole movement to the next level. Like I've been giving the example, wouldn't it be great if you know Siri could work well and I could ask her to book uh, a, a vacation for myself and not just you know show me options for a vacation, but actually go out, book the vacation, book my Airbnb, book my Uber, transportation, book a few excursions, wherever I may be. Like, I think that's where this is all heading. And it's, you know, the right approach, in my opinion, to open this up to developers, because OpenAI can't build all of those individualized apps, right? Just in the same way that Apple couldn't build the entire app store. It went out, it looked at certain applications and built those specifically because they knew that those may be, you know, very widely used as in messenger you know the phone having safari like there are certain applications calculator clock that just come custom built through apple and i imagine you know open ai will approach it in the same way they'll have kind of open ai's version of certain use cases or certain uh custom gpts but you know then allowing third-party developers to actually build the broader use cases the ones that we're not even thinking of today that's the way to truly build, you know, an ecosystem and become a platform, right? A platform, I forget which billionaire out there made the quote is, you know, you can only define a platform once the value of what's built on top of it supersedes what the the value of the underlying platform is. So, and I think that is kind of the approach that they're taking long-term. And that's a good way to transition to our third topic, which is, which will be more performant long-term, these private large language models or the leading open source large language models? Nick? Before we get to that, I actually want to give credit to me butchering the actual quote, which I think was by Bill Gates on platforms and the definition of platforms. So we're going back to the previous uh, topic here quickly, just so I can give credit to that mysterious billionaire who happens to be Bill Gates. You know, we can't be taking credit for people's work here, Sam. No, when we look at open source versus closed, um, I think it's really interesting and hopefully we'll be able to pull up the graphic here. And this is looking at the performance of open source models out there versus you know company specific models. And as you can see in kind of this trend line, and this is a, a standard benchmark used to um, standardize the performance of these different models. And as you can see from the, the slope of these, these lines, these uh, perfect to fit lines, you're seeing uh, faster development at the open source level versus uh, when we look at some of these closed off uh, ecosystems and foundation models. And we were you know, just giving a ton of credit <laughs> to OpenAI, but actually if you look at what's being built outside of their ecosystem, specifically, I, I think it, we would be remiss to not call out Meta and what they're doing with Llama 2. Who would have thought we would be sitting here crediting Meta and Facebook for building you know, the most widely used open source model um, but that's the reality of today. And, you know, giving developers the opportunity to use these models in a way that's not putting any burden on them from a financial standpoint is actually, I think, proving to be a successful uh, solution to, you know, the closed off ecosystems that some companies are are building. And 
you know, that chart is from the great work of Franken and Joseph. So yep. Giving uh, credit. We have to give credit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right after, right after you give credit to Bill Gates. <laughs> yeah. We're know. giving credit yeah. to Bill <laughs> Gates. We're giving credit to Frank and Joseph. <laughs> um, and so one, you should tweet at them and discuss it because I think it's interesting, not just from open source versus private, but it plays into the AI regulation discussion that we were talking about last week. And how do these companies interact with the rules of the land, right? If there is a private company, um, it's far easier for the government to come in and say, regulate that open source is probably a bit more difficult. And the flip side of that is it's far easier for a private company to lobby the government to get favorable rules made. Whereas open source, you don't necessarily have that cohesive unit to get into Congress and say, Hey, you know, consider these things when making the rules. Um, and I'd say just the recent history of software has been towards open source. And so it's unclear that that trend should change now. Well, I think it is. But also, if you look at the true winners, at least in the software space, it has been private companies with closed off ecosystems. And I'm using closed and private interchangeably here because I think both work uh, to a certain extent. Um, if you look at kind of the, the early development of um, certain standards with the internet, um, you had open source standards. If you, if you think about um, the operating systems behind uh, desktop computers, there's actually some interesting charts floating out there. Um, if you look at it, you know, in the early days, it was the open source models, um, some of these open standards that actually took off. But then you really needed a pioneer to come in and push the progress to what you know consumers would actually want to use it for. And that's how you had Mac and Windows kind of come out of this open source uh, kind of fight that began in kind of the early days of, of compute. And I think maybe you'll see something similar arise in the uh, open versus private slash closed debate in uh, the... AI world, right? Like maybe open source is where you'll see a ton of innovations. But to say that Facebook isn't watching very closely and won't take all of this at some point in house, and then build very specific use cases that help, you know, that work really well with Nick's new Ray-Ban sunglasses that he wants hey, for their capability for. <laughs> yes, that I mean, that would be amazing. Um, I actually you saw the videos you were there. You're actually yeah. in the video, Sam, I did the, the video at the wedding. I I think it is actually the first wedding to be ever video videoed through a pair of sunglasses. So I'm going to take that with me. To All the right. Grave. Someone call up the <laughs> someone called up the Guinness Book of World Records. And hopefully, I did send the video to Meta. I found the Meta Ray Ban glasses uh, account on Instagram, and I sent it to them. So maybe we'll see see uh, my wedding in the next uh, keynote, um, and Zuckerberg will talk talk so kindly about it. Um, no, uh, but back, that's a, uh, we, we really tailed off there. Um, but yeah, to say that Meta or one of these companies that have open source models are not, you know, going to then break a piece of it off and, and use it in-house to build customized solutions for people, I think is the wrong uh, way to look at the space. But I think putting out an open source model allows them to see how developers are using it, right? Allows them to see how customers are using it without having to put a lot into the ecosystem itself. 
um, you know, the amount of money OpenAI is probably spending versus Meta, probably wildly different in terms of, you know, use case and just training uh, for these models. But I could be wrong there. And then Nick, a name that I did not hear you mention in any of this is Google or Alphabet. Um, obviously, they have Bard, but I've not heard much about it recently. Um, what do you think's going on over there? I wish we had Frank on to to talk about it. Um, I you know don't really follow Google from that lens. I follow it from the advertising side. I will give maybe Brett well, Winton's opinion. Yeah, I was gonna yeah, say. I, yeah, I feel I, like yeah. it ties into that advertising. Yeah. I do think that they're looking at this and saying, will this begin to eat away at our advertising dollars? Because if you think about the long term of how we'll interact with these AI agents and chatbots. If search becomes, you know, just one search and you have everything at your fingertips that you really wanted to get out of search, that does eat away at Google's business. Google wants you to click through a bunch of different links or click to the most to the sponsored link. Right. And that doesn't really lend itself to the way that we're using or at least beginning to use these chatbots. And so I think Google might be slow in the way that they're going to roll out their capability. I think it would. We, we might be wrong in saying that they don't have this, like Bard doesn't have the same capability as maybe some of these other models. I think one, you can see it performs pretty well, but also, you know, the ones that they probably have in-house are probably much more performative. Just why would they roll it out and begin to cannibalize their own advertising or search business today if they don't know where this is going yet? I think, and it's the innovator's dilemma, right? You have this new innovative tech in AI and generative AI, and they have a business to protect that this definitely could cannibalize. And so this is the classic, classic innovators dilemma that they're now dealing with and you know how they roll this out, we'll see. The real question is what is Apple doing? Why isn't Siri smart yet? Why isn't Alexa Why? smart yet? Well, so, so let's just, well, we'll say, if you want more on the innovators dilemma, Nick mentioned it. Brett Winton has a nice little tweet thread yeah. out there that you can check out. We'll say that is our three topics for the day. That's our show. Thank you all for listening, for bearing with us through this uh, this brainstorm in particular. 